What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you. It is Thursday, December 21st, 2023. Talking some St. Louis Cardinals and updating you on a situation that we've discussed in recent days. The Japanese reliever Yuki Matsui mentioned a couple days ago that, hey, this is a guy that reportedly has visited the Cardinals. There have been some communication between the two sides, uh, obviously, but then he goes and reportedly signs with the San Diego Padres. And then I saw the amount that he is reportedly signed for with San Diego. And it got me kind of curious as to whether that was an area that the Cardinals should have been more involved in. Or we can talk about maybe they were involved. But it's a classic case of takes two to tango. And kind of going into our thoughts on on what might have happened here. And, and maybe what we think should have happened in the case of Yuki Matsui and the St. Louis Cardinals. Appreciate you guys for joining me. As always, make sure to click the subscribe link in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen if you're watching here on YouTube, if you're watching on Spotify or listening on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe on those respective platforms as well. And just a real quick reminder today to go to stlouisbbwaa.com so that you can get your tickets for the Baseball Writers Dinner, which will feature Tony La Russa, Adam Wainwright, and many more folks uh, in Cardinals land that you know and love. So make sure you you go check that out and maybe consider it for uh, a Christmas gift for the, the folks that you love in your life who also happen to love the Cardinals. I think it's going to be a great night, the Sunday night of winter warm-up in St. Louis, uh, downtown at the MAC. Certainly going to be a good time. So check it out, stlouisbbwaa.com. Let's go ahead, though, and get into the conversation of the day, which is Yuki Matsui. So it's been a couple of days that, uh, since we saw the reports that the, the, the Padres and Yuki Matsui were close on a potential contract. And then I believe it was reported by Yaku Cosmopolitan, a Japanese outlet. I'm not 100% sure I'm getting the, the pronunciation right on that, so apologies if not. But Matsui has agreed in principle, according to this report, on a four-year, $21 million deal with the Padres. I have not seen if it's been officially announced just yet, but typically when those reports and dollar figures are out there and exchanged, it seems as though... It seems as though that's going to be something that you can count on and checking this out as well. Um, looks like on Twitter, Daniel Starkend, who is a managing editor for a, a Lakers blog, said, heard there's a possibility both Otani and Yamamoto could be at SoFi Stadium tonight for the Rams game against the Saints. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't know when I started reading that tweet that it was going to be a Rams-related tweet. I probably wouldn't have done it. But anyhow, um, the Dodgers obviously pushing for Yamamoto. The Padres getting Matsui. What do we think about the fact, though, that Matsui, a really quality left-handed reliever, left-handed closer from uh, over in Japan, pitching in the Nippon Professional Baseball League throughout his career so far, ends up with the Padres on a contract that, I mean, again, just looking at it, I thought was kind of low compared to what I expected the talented 28-year-old lefty to sign for. Given his uh, his pedigree as a closing pitcher over in Japan, I'll, I'll read it off again, the last couple of seasons for him, 1.92 ERA, and then this past year even better, a 1.57 ERA for the Rakuten Golden Eagles. 50-plus um, 50, 50 innings in both of those seasons, strikeout totals in the 80s and 70s for both of those seasons, like, across the board seems to be a rock-solid reliever that if you can get him for, and projections might have said $8 million, $9 million, $10 million for an average annual value, 
on a 28-year-old pitcher, so a three-, four-, five-year contract, not all that unusual to potentially see. And, of course, it ends up being um, four years with the Padres. Not that much. I mean, average annual value of $5.25 million. I don't know exactly what the breakdown is on whether it's going to be front-loaded, back-loaded, anything like that. But knowing where the Cardinals are and knowing what they could still use, which is, you know, according to their own public statements, back-end relief help to go along with guys like Giovanni Gallegos and Ryan Helsley and Jojo Romero, which, again, John Mozeliak has also said we like those guys and feel like the back end of the bullpen is solid. But they have also said they're still looking to potentially tweak that bullpen and make some additions. Um, Obviously, we don't know what's going to end up happening. It depends on which interview you talk about. Back at the winter meetings, it was clear from Mozeliak that the Cardinals were interested in picking up more pitching and relief pitching in particular. But then they did have the Rule 5 draft the final day of the winter meetings down in Nashville, and they added relievers through that process. And also, you know, when they traded Tyler O'Neill, that picked up a couple of relief arms that could be in the mix for 2024 and contributing out of this bullpen. So maybe the Cardinals really do feel, as John Mozeliak mentioned to Tom Ackerman on KMOX last weekend, that they are... They're happy with how the bullpen looks if it should be the final product. I still don't tend to believe that it will be the final product. And the Cardinals are obviously at least pursuing possible options because according to Mark Feinsand, who reported last week that Yuki Matsui was in St. Louis on a visit meeting with the Cardinals. And I believe there was also a report that there was another unnamed pitcher that the Cardinals had met with within the last week or so. Um, People speculating, well, was that Yamamoto? Does that maybe fit into the ilk of conversation regarding Lars Nupar and, and Lars Nupar's mom working on Yamamoto's mob to try and uh, make St. Louis look like an appetizing destination for his free agency pursuit. I don't know. I, I My comment, somebody had asked me that on Twitter, and I said, I don't happen to have intel, um, but just like putting it out there, speculating, I would feel like it would be difficult given all the media frenzy surrounding Yamamoto and and his every move. It's kind of like that was Otani, and then he signed, and now Yamamoto is the next big fish on the market, especially for teams in need of premier starting pitching. And the kid is 25 years old, and he appears to be an elite option. So a lot of the big market teams are involved, but it seems like his every movement is now cataloged via reporting. And even though the Cardinals, they don't speak publicly about their free agent pursuits, and they really, you know, don't necessarily speak privately about it uh, to reporters who could then leak it publicly. So it's not something that we would really know about, uh, barring something unforeseen or something unusual in the way that that information comes out. So was it Yamamoto as far as being an unnamed guy the Cardinals have met with? Probably not. I also saw on um, one of the one of the podcasts today, I the, AJ, AJ Pruszynski's podcast. What's the name of that thing? I'm not going to be able to find it here. Just give me a second. I can find it. Foul territory. That's the one. They had Ken Rosenthal on, and Rosenthal saying he doesn't expect the Cardinals to land Yamamoto, uh, aware, obviously, of the, the Lars Newpark comments and kind of saying the same thing I said, which is like, it doesn't seem like something the Cardinals would do, but if Lars Newpark is talking about it, maybe we should at least have that in the back of our mind as a possibility. But to Ken Rosenthal, and according to his sources, he says it does not seem uh, likely as far as he's concerned. And the quote was, that would be a shock to be sure. So I don't know that the Cardinals have met with Yamamoto. That would seem far-fetched. That being said, if they were going to try and do something, wouldn't it seem fitting that it would happen under the cover of darkness? That's typically the way that they operate until they have something done. But do I think that's the case? No. However, it does seem credible if Mark Feinstein is putting it out there that Yamamoto, not pardon me, not Yamamoto, but Yuki Matsui, the lefty reliever from Japan, 
it would seem credible that he has met with the Cardinals or had met with them before the Padres deal came together. And so you ask yourself, okay, why is it that Yuki Matsui doesn't end up a St. Louis Cardinals, a St. Louis Cardinal, rather, if they felt strongly enough about their pursuit of him to have a meeting with him in person in St. Louis, according to Fine Center's uh, reporting, but then they don't end up finishing that deal. What what happens there? Meeting could always go not to their liking, though I don't expect that would be the the situation. Typically, if you're having that sort of meeting, you're interested in the guy, and you're more trying to sell him on your situation than the other way around, I would have to imagine in this case, because there are plenty of suitors, or there were, for, for Yuki Matsui before the Padres picked him up. And so how does that come together and the Cardinals don't end up with a deal? And so my thought process and question would be, first question would be, did the Cardinals make a formal offer? Is that something, I would wonder if that's something that took place. I don't know the answer to that question. Again, with the notion that the Cardinals don't typically comment, it would maybe be difficult to find out, but it would be something that I, you know, would like to would like to know uh, if that should be something that, that ends up getting told to a reporter or whatever the case might be. Intrigued to know the answer to that because... If the answer is yes, the next natural question would be, well, what was the amount of that offer? And that's probably not information that will ever come out. But if you're the Cardinals, it would almost make sense to put it out there, right? Like if you're just thinking, we know what their standard operating procedure is. They don't do that. They don't talk about free agents. That's always been the policy. But if you're the Cardinals, and you've got people going, oh, Moselak cheaped out again, which again, I don't know that that was the case here. Um the Cardinals met with him. Did that result in a formal offer? I don't know. But if the interest was enough to meet with him, you'd have to think that that was at least on the table or something that was being considered. Was it that the Cardinals cheaped out? I, I got to be honest with you. I cannot imagine that that's what actually happened. If the ultimate price is four years and $21 million, and the Cardinals were, let's say that in the mind of the player, Yuki Matsui, the Cardinals are on even footing with the Padres. Like we have to engage in a little bit of hypothetical to put ourselves in the mind frame without having all the details. If that was the case, were the Cardinals really not in a position of comfort to offer even $5 million per to this guy? I doubt it. I If the Cardinals made an offer, I would venture to guess that it would have been comparable. And then if there's a, a stature of the other stuff that could be involved in a pursuit of this of this nature, then it wouldn't surprise me to think that the Cardinals would have been willing to offer even more than the 4 and 21 to try and convince a player who might have reason to go elsewhere that actually St. Louis is the the result and the place you should pick. That should be your destination. Sometimes you need to nudge a guy with extra financial incentive, maybe on top of what he has from another organization, to do that. Again, all hypothetical. We don't know for sure what took place here. Um, but like five years, or pardon me, four years and $21 million is a $5.25 million average annual value. For this guy's numbers and, and for what the different prognostication outlets out there, the, the places that look into the data on this and say, here's what we think based on historical precedent that this guy's going to get. If they're saying eight, nine, 10 million for an AAV, you know, you I, I wouldn't have balked it three years and 30 million total, right? Or three years and 27 million. And maybe if the guy wants a fourth year, then okay, you say, all right, maybe a little less on the AAV if you're the team committing to more of a substantial term in the length of the contract, maybe that answer ends up being four years, 28, four years, 32. You know, you can fill in the blanks and kind of imagine the way those thought processes might go. I, it's my takeaway without knowing 
So I have to, again, say, and you'll say, well, you're stumping for the front office. If you don't know, why would you say it? Well, we're, we're just speculating. I just can't imagine that a Cardinal team that knows this international market and they know that it's a, a, a sought-after market at this point with teams pretty much universally bought in on the idea that these players from Japan and, and even the Korean baseball organization, that these guys can come over and be successful. It's not like it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever the increment of time you'd like to use for the example. It's not like before you had these examples of guys coming over and doing it where you say, you know, that's not even, that might be double A baseball over there. How do you know a guy's going to do well over here just because he did well over there? Can't really invest in that. I don't think that that's the mindset at all across baseball. And it's probably why you're seeing more and more of these guys who are worthy of opportunities in MLB being posted and, and pursuing those opportunities stateside compared to continuing their careers where they've always been. So it's a, it's a market that I think is sought after in the multiple teams. It's competitive teams want to be in on these guys. I think the Cardinals knowing that and knowing that they've already had to delve into this pitching market a few times for starters in this off season, they know what it takes to, you know, be competitive in, in these markets. So you're not going to waste your time having a visit with a guy. I wouldn't think if you aren't also willing to kind of be in the ballpark on what the contract would look like. So is it conceivable at the end of the day that the Cardinals made a bid on Matsui and it came up short? I think the answer to that is yes. Is it conceivable though, that they came up short for a reason other than the financials? And I would say to that also possibly yes. Again, it's speculation, but think about the other elements that would convince or or cause a baseball player to think about playing in San Diego rather than St. Louis. A lot of times we hear that the guys coming over from Japan prefer a coastal destination, and certainly the Southern California teams have that baked-in advantage of, or even you get into like the San Francisco area, weather is a nice kind of stipulation that you know is going to be in your favor if you're uh, one of those teams trying to sign a guy. And then on the East Coast, obviously, New York teams are always going to be in on these these types of players because, especially when we're talking about Yamamoto, I don't know whether Yuki Matsui or what his market was. We kind of have a list of teams for Yamamoto, but for Matsui, you know, conceivably, those would be destinations that would be attractive. Moselak has talked about geography is something that, you you know, you have to overcome. You cannot change it if it is in the mind of a player that I'd like to play in a certain climate or I'd like to live in a certain climate and I'd like to play where I live and stay all right, then inherently there are going to be places and organizations that have an advantage over the Cardinals in that respect. And maybe the other element is, like we know with Yamamoto, well, I'd like to play with you know with people I know, with Japanese players. I'd like to have some Japanese teammates. And then, okay, Lars Nupar is obviously a, a, a thread, a connecting thread that we've talked about with Yamamoto. How much does that actually convince a guy like, yeah, I'm going to go play there, Again, that's up to interpretation. We're never really going to get the full in and out of what the details are on these pursuits. But like those are some of the elements that another player, any player really, might consider beyond just what the contract is. Maybe the desire to win, like that's an aspect that you can sort of control. You can't maybe control your geography, but you can, based on your performance in the teams and the rosters and the seasons and the, the reputation that you put together, that can bake into the way you are viewed in the market, certainly. And you might have players that played for you in the past that might know the, the individual, and you might be able to have conversations with those guys that say, yeah, St. Louis is a great place to play versus, oh, don't come play for the Cardinals. You know, I didn't enjoy my time there. Like, these are things that happen behind the scenes of these negotiations and and help to color them 
and give some background to them. And that's why I like with a guy like Sonny Gray, the different people that he talked to, you know, he, he it reinforces the idea that, yes, I want to become a Cardinal. And obviously we know with the, with the way that it has been spoken about by the front office, important to John Mozeliak and the Cardinals organization to have those types of guys who want to be here. And so their buy-in wouldn't be questioned as to, uh, you know, how how difficult a deal like that coming together would be. Well, they already are predisposed to wanting to be in St. Louis. It's it's an easier negotiating um, kind of surface, uh, the, the 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 flat ground the, the flat ground level at which you begin to negotiate there. It, it's a it's a nice launching point because you already know that you don't have to do that part with the player. You don't have to convince the guy of why St. Louis should be considered before you even get to the dollars and cents of it. And I feel like that's always a big part. Like you can put these tea leaves together over and over as stories come out about the guys, the Cardinals do end up signing, or maybe the ones that they don't, the ones that they attempt to get in the fold, like a John Carlos Stanton years ago, uh, David Price years ago, especially in the Stanton case, we can ultimately know that the reason that he didn't come was because he didn't want to be in St. Louis. He wanted to be in a bigger market, whatever his reasons were, that element may be something the Cardinals cannot control. But if you can control the, appeal of your franchise and your organization for the things that are in, within your power, the reputation that you have for the way you know players are treated or the, the amenities or the competitive environment, the clubhouse environment, the guy that you have as the manager, like all of these things can be selling points. But also at the end of the day, a different individual might say, you know, those are all great. I just, what's the bag of money worth and in which one's the biggest you may have players that go that route. Like this, these are human beings we're talking about. And so I think everybody is motivated by different things and it doesn't happen in a vacuum or in an, in an order of operations where you're like, well, this is my most important thing. So it's the only thing I'm going to look at, probably look at lots of things and everybody's going to be different in that respect. So as it pertains to Yuki Matsui, do we think it's possible that the Cardinals just had other things that were working against them that if they had made a four-year $21 million offer, which we don't know whether they did or they didn't, but let's say that they did. Would you have chosen, would the player have chosen San Diego's offer over that with the Cardinals? I, I think it's conceivable to say that that would be the case. Um, I've been to San Diego. It's nice. I like it there. More expensive to live. Taxes is probably a consideration. So that's the other thing that, you you know, if you're in the, the nitty-gritty on these negotiations, you could probably get involved in and try and sway a guy with that. I don't know that specifically they would say, hey, you shouldn't sign with the Padres because they do have state taxes that are loftier than what we have here in Missouri. Like, I don't think it goes that way. That might be like a tampering thing if you were to use that exact line of thought, but you can, you can make compelling arguments and, and say things that are, are true and applicable to your situation that could then, you know, cause a player to think, Oh yeah, maybe this is an attractive place to go. Like, I would think that those are the ways that those kind of play out in those negotiating rooms or, via the text threads that the agents are, it's really the agents, right, that are mostly involved in making these things happen. They know from their players what what should happen or what they'd like to see happen, and then they can then take that into the rooms, into these discussions, and and get a favorable outcome for the player. So the thing that's interesting to me with this Matsui contract is that I think conceivably the Cardinals could have beaten it, and I, I would argue that if they made a formal offer, I would hope that they did beat it, but sometimes you might make an offer and then there's an offer from another team and you may not get the information. If the, the player, you know, the agent is running point on all of this and the player clearly wants to go to San Diego, maybe there isn't ever an, an opportunity to even counter offer or say, hey, this is what we're looking at. Can you beat it? What can you do for us? I don't know. We don't know, but it is fun to talk about. It's fun to think about and to imagine. And maybe the Cardinals are still in the, the thought process of 
yes, that would be some money to spend. But if we're going to make a trade for a Dylan Cease or somebody else that's going to make that kind of money, eight to ten to twelve million in in arbitration or whatever it is, then maybe that's the reason that you don't make a formal offer because if it gets accepted, that's you know you have to know for sure that that's the route that you want to go. And that takes some other things that you may have been working on off the table. There might be multiple tracks that you're working at once. And to make a formal offer, which is in retrospect, as we kind of think through this, probably the reason the Cardinals maybe don't do it as much as we feel they should, which I can't say for sure that they don't. But a lot of times when the conversations come out, it was the Cardinals never did get close enough to make a formal offer on, you know, player X, Y, or Z. I believe the first instance of that this offseason was Aaron Nola right? It was clear enough to the Cardinals that he's going back to Philadelphia based on any brief conversations they had with the agent. It didn't go far according to the reports that came out. And so that might be an answer to the question of, well, why not just send the offer? Like yesterday, I think it was on B-Shave Daily. Go back if you missed it, the talk the talk about Yamamoto and Newt Bar and whether that's on the table still for the Cardinals. Uh, and then I believe Jim Hayes, his his video with Lars has come out. So check it out on on his YouTube channel for Jim Hayes. But like those things that we were thinking about yesterday are relevant to this because my argument with the Cardinals on that one is you might think that 300 million is going to be the asking price, but unless you offer the 250 or the 270 or whatever it is you're willing to go to and make that the formal offer, you don't necessarily know that the player would have turned you down. And that was my argument of like Cardinals should just make an offer, but also you don't flippantly make a, an offer of that magnitude unless you're comfortable with the player accepting that offer, because that is going to change the trajectory of your entire offseason of your entire future in terms of budgetary restrictions and the things you're looking at in that regard. So it is still a big commitment. It's not, again, I feel like as fans do this, I think we, as media do this, where we've all played MLB the show, right? We've played the video game and you can click when you're in franchise mode, you can click, oh, here's a, here's a little nice, nice, neat table. I can pick the number of years. I can pick the average value, annual value, and then it'll tell me kind of what the total contract offer is. I'm in free agency mode and I click X on my, my PlayStation and, oh, I, I was told the offer was either accepted or rejected or maybe they counter offer. And then that's it. Like it's a simplified process in so much as the way that we've ever done it in our experiences as baseball consumers. And so for us, it's like, all right, if the number was 300, First of all, as the Cardinals, you won't maybe know that until after the fact. But you could just say, well, the Cardinals, if they were willing to offer 250, why didn't they just do it? Well, yeah, I think it's it's right of us to say they should be willing to offer a significant contract to Yamamoto because we all think he's a really good player and that his game will translate and that he'll be transcendent in terms of promotional opportunities for the Cardinals in Japan to go along with Lars Nupar. And like that's exciting. And I think uh, whatever marketing department lands Yamamoto is going to be licking their chops for the opportunities uh, that will result from that. But at the end of the day, we click a button on a PlayStation and we go, hey, it worked or hey, it didn't work. If you're going to click that button in real life and send that offer, you have to be you have to be confident in it, I suppose. And I've never dealt with multimillion dollar contracts personally. So I imagine that there is more. There's more angst that goes into it than when you're doing it on a on a a save of your franchise mode on PlayStation, if that makes sense. Maybe this is something that other people don't relate to and that track and, and my mindset on that is completely off base. But like I spent years playing those games. And so like, we feel like, Oh, we know how this goes. It's real life. And so there are real implications. And sometimes it's easy through a computer screen to just go, Oh no, this, we know exactly what this is. And the Cardinals cheaped out, whatever the case would be. 
In the case of Yamamoto, I think they should send that offer. In the case of Yuki Mitsui, did they send the offer? If they did, how much? I think those are fascinating questions that if we knew the answers to, um, we could definitively know a little bit better, maybe firstly into the inside of what happened and better into the inside of like what the Cardinals are hoping to do next. Because now they're left with still that possibility of trading for somebody, right? And it could be a starting pitcher trade that changes. Maybe it bumps a guy like Steven Matz into the bullpen or it bumps a guy like Steven Matz onto the Cincinnati Reds. Like we don't, we don't exactly know what the, what the, the downstream effects of those moves would be with a Yuki Matsui signing. It would have been pretty clear like, okay, you've got another lefty that you trust for leverage in your bullpen. And maybe that budget wise takes you right up until about what you're ready to, to do for the time being. You're ready to go into Jupiter without any other big moves. And then you still have some budgetary room before that kind of soft cap, hard cap, whichever it is, of $200 million that in July, if there's a move that needs to be made, you have the bandwidth to make it based on the comfort level, right? Because when I say you have money to play with or you have room as the organization and the front office and ownership, what I'm really saying is like within their self-defined limitations. Because my opinion, is there more money to be spent? Pretty much always. Um, you're not going to find me as one of the folks who would say, you know, baseball is not that profitable. Like, I, I think the team values, that's something that matters. Does it mean there's always the liquid cash on hand? Maybe not. Is there some uncertainty because of the Valley sports situation and what the TV revenues are going to look like? I'm sure that there is. But at the end of the day, I still, in the back of my mind, am confident that if there was a move to be made that could better the team, it could be made and the, the budgetary stuff could be worked out even in the case of like a Yamamoto. Um, but in the case of Matsui, what would the offer have been? And what would it have taken to be so far above and beyond? Like, let's pretend that the Padres were just where he wanted to be because of what they were able to offer him aside from the money. Is there a dollar amount that makes that different? If he makes 21 million over four years and you offered 30 million over four years, would that have swayed him? I would have to imagine that the answer would be yes, but I guess we don't know. I guess we don't know if we don't know the motivations of Matsui, and maybe more will come out about, hey, why'd you choose to sign with San Diego? If that interview gets done, when the, the Padres officially announce this deal, then maybe we'll have some more insight to be able to add to this situation. But my thought would be, the contract was so low in terms of what I expected it to be that this was maybe an opportunity where you could just woo a guy with money, where you could, and again, we don't know that to be true for sure, in the Yamamoto instance, let's say the Cardinals are willing to go to two. Actually, that's not a good example. Let's say, like, hypothetically, before Otani signed with the Dodgers for his contract. And maybe that's not even a good example because the deferrals were baked in. But let's just say another team was willing to offer the exact same deferral structure so that wasn't an, a factor between the two choices. The Dodgers were, it was $700 million, right? And it was, you know, deferred, whatever the case would be. Another team was willing to go $725 million, same situation. But let's say that other team was like the Red Sox, which I don't think that would have been the case, but stick with me. Just for the sake of argument, he would pick, okay, I'm picking the Dodgers because of the weather is better, and I think they're more competitive sooner, uh, and I like their historical willingness to spend money, so I think they'll add around me more than the Red Sox will because when the Red Sox traded Mookie Betts, I remember that that happened, and I just, what if they do that again and you can't trust ownership to not be cheap? So that's why I go with the Dodgers. Red Sox offered more money, but you still make the decision that you make because of external factors. But in that case, you're talking about a negligible difference 
because 700 million versus 725 million is a boatload of money and a buttload of money, however you prefer to say that, regardless. You know, the, the percentage is negligible, the difference between the two contracts. But in the case of a smaller deal, like we're talking about with Matsui, four years, 21 million, you could, I mean, you could up that contract price by 25% or 33% or 50% and still not be doing anything crazy necessarily. I mean, if you were to say, Yuki Matsui, man, we think you're great. Three years, 36 million. How many times have mediocre relievers been offered $12 million on the open market? Like a lot. So for me, a guy that has a bunch of strikeouts, a high K rate, great ERA in, in a competitive league and pitching the most meaningful innings, you know, over 30 saves the last couple of seasons, he's a ninth inning guy. Like, I trust that that guy's going to be worth $8 million, $10 million, $12 million stateside. I think that that is the market would show that that's historically an accurate prediction. Now, maybe the other part of it is I mentioned that he would be in the mix, right, for the Cardinals back-end roles, 7th inning, 8th inning, ninth inning. Romero closed out games at the end of last year, looked pretty good doing it. Ryan Helsley, before the injury, was their closer. Solid season, if not uh, quite as good as his all-star campaign. Gallegos, not really as much of a threat to take ninth inning job away from the other two, if all are healthy, because he's kind of had his shot at that and hasn't always looked as comfortable in the ninth. But if you're Yuki Matsui and you say, wherever I go, I'm going to be that guy. I have to be the closer. Does that potentially become an external factor that the Cardinals would say, we really would like you to be a part of our team. We think you will join in with another great lefty that we that we have in, in Romero. And then we've got a couple of right-handers that we really like. And we think we can mix and match and, and have maybe a different closer every day. Well, that wouldn't necessarily be as compelling of an argument for somebody who desires to be the guy, right? To have To have that cachet attached to his name. I'm the closer of this team. Maybe that's something that the Padres could offer that the Cardinals just couldn't or didn't, wouldn't feel comfortable to do so because there are downstream ramifications to your clubhouse if you do that. You tell a guy like Helsley who, you know, whatever your opinion is on his relationship with the team, whether it's a good one, a bad one, I, I think, you know, any any frustrations probably get overblown and overanalyzed, and I think that they could certainly have a, a, a great year together and there'd be no problems. Um, I, I think if you talk to people in the Cardinals organization, they're fond of Ryan Helsley because he does a lot of really good things with a baseball in his hand. But that being said, if you were to tell Ryan Helsley, look, uh, you don't really have a shot coming in to be the closer at spring. Um, or, you know, maybe they tell him he's the incumbent and he's the guy. I don't expect that. I expect Ollie Marmol in mid-February to say whenever he gets asked about it for the first time, we're going to look at, you know, mixing and matching and doing what's appropriate, but we trust all the guys that are back there. I could give you the quote now, right? That's probably along the lines of what he's going to say, and I can't hardly blame him because he's got legit options, especially if they add one more, to be able to mix and match to his heart's content. But if you're Ryan Helsley and you're told, hey, we got this Yuki Matsui guy, he's going to be the closer. All right, what what is the ramifications of that? Some people might say, well, you're paid to play baseball. You do it, and you don't ask questions, and you you don't get hurt feelings about it. Probably a fair assessment, but at the same time, these are humans that we're working with. So how does Ryan Helsley feel about successfully being the closer, an all-star closer, and then having a pretty good closing season before getting injured in 2023, and then, you know, just being told, well, we signed somebody else that's, you know, he's going to be the guy. Or if you're Jojo Romero, who did everything in his his power to earn that opportunity, at least to compete for that role in 2023, and you're told, yeah, you man, you showed us a lot. You were really instrumental in kind of keeping the clubhouse together in ways that people maybe didn't see uh, last year when things were going badly. But we, we you know, Yuki's going to be our closer. 
we signed him. We had to tell him that, that that would be the case. I'm not saying the Cardinals should or shouldn't have offered this. If that's what it takes, maybe you offer that. But there are clubhouse dynamics and ramifications that I think you don't have to consider as much if you're a Cardinal fan reading about what the guy signed for in another organization. And it would be different if you were in the room in the negotiating table saying, this is his top priority. Can you offer us this? And you say, no, but I can offer you five years and 30 million bigger contract than you're going to get everywhere else. Again, we don't know that the Cardinals even did that, but it is kind of the, as I think through, how did he end up at the Padres for four years, 21 million, seemingly a bargain and team friendly. That would be my thought process as to maybe how some of that happened. It's frustrating. I think from a Cardinal perspective, because of the knowledge and the report that came out that they did visit with him and they did have him and talk to him. Like that makes it feel like it was something that could have been close, but keep in mind, there are lots of meetings that probably take place that never see the light of day. Don't get reported and also don't result in contracts. So it's just, it, it, it ratchets up the proportionality to where it's not even proportional the amount of angst that people might have over a meeting like that that gets leaked because they didn't get upset about every other meeting that happened that they didn't know about. So why is this one any more relevant to to be upset about when it may not have been any closer to a contract than the other ones that you didn't know ever happened, if that makes sense. Um, Matsui, though, I think is a frustrating one because you can see the need there, not necessarily for a lefty reliever specifically because I think the Cardinals honestly might be covered on that front. If Romero is is what we think he can be, John King, I still think, is a major league reliever. I don't know that he's a leverage guy, but he looked good last year. Look at the numbers. Did a nice job. Maybe a Zach Thompson or a Libertor, if I had to pick between the two, I would say Libertor is more likely to end up in the relief mix with Thompson maybe factoring in as a starter this coming season, um, even if it's just in a depth role and, and comes up in terms of injury replacement, whatever that might look like. Those guys are both lefties as well. So the Cardinals, I do think, have a bead on having a good left side of their bullpen. If anything, if there's an elite reliever from the right side that you could sign for that amount of money, my goodness, you have to do it. Um, but even from the left side, if he's elite, he's elite. I think Yuki Matsui might be. And so that's maybe why it would have made sense for the Cardinals to do everything in their power to get him, regardless of handedness. Obviously, at the end of the day, it did not happen. So let me know your thoughts on the fact that it didn't happen, the how or the why of it, maybe you can chime in on that. Let me know in the YouTube comment section below how you feel about it as a Cardinals fan. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some, you know, some angst, some people saying, you know, they blew this one, they had a shot and they blew it. Maybe that is the case, but I would also still remind, I try to be like that voice of reason until we really know, we don't necessarily know, but it can also be fun to speculate. I can understand that side of fandom. So let me know what you think in the comment section below. Please do subscribe to the channel if you enjoy the kind of content that I've been putting out and will continue to put out. Um, throughout the rest of the offseason, and then getting down to Jupiter for spring training is going to be a blast. Um, I looked it up, and this will maybe be something I talk about in the, the coming episodes as well. V-Shape Daily is the name of the podcast. Hasn't always been a daily podcast, but this year, more than any other, we recorded more episodes. Um, I think we're going to hit like 170 for the year, which when you think about maybe five a week, I'm not going to call it V-Shape Week Daily, but that's kind of the idea is, you know, if you do five podcasts a week, that's pretty good. Um if we get to 170, there's like 260 opportunities of weekdays in a, in a calendar year. So maybe next year, the goal is to get it up to at least 200. Um, certainly, my goal is to, to record as often as possible for you guys, especially when there's stuff to talk about. Uh, but let me know what you think of the show. Let me know, you know, leave reviews, Spotify, Apple. I think you can leave reviews, like on YouTube, all that good stuff. And it helps grow the platform and grow the program. So appreciate you guys, as always, for listening. That'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll talk to you next time on Be Shave Daily. Peace.